Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your hospitality, and I want to thank your pastor for his friendship. And uh, it's, uh, it's been exciting to be here. It's been encouraging to be here. Uh, it's been a great opportunity. It's, you know, I was flattered to even be asked to come out. And, um, and so I don't, I don't take lightly the opportunity that we have together. I hope you don't either. And, you know, I have uh, discovered that some, some messages need a, a word of uh, preparation even more than a word of introduction. Okay, so tonight is kind of like that. I would say that, uh, you know, tonight's probably where I earn my reputation. And despite what you may have heard, uh, I, I, don't preach, I don't preach everywhere like I'm going to preach here tonight. But um, you can handle it. I believe you can handle it, uh, regardless what you believe uh, about yourself. And secondly, I don't preach all the time like I'm going to preach here tonight. So this, uh, you could say this might be a hard message. And, you know, I tried to make sure, I tried to do my best last, you know, yesterday on Sunday to get as many as we could back Monday, because I knew that on Tuesday you have pork butt, and all I needed to do was say, 5 a.m., they start smoking the pork butt, everybody will be here Tuesday night. So Tuesday night takes care of itself, and, and but, you know, Monday night's going to be kind of hard preaching, and you know, there's hard preaching that's that, that is hard preaching. It's like, oh man, that was hard preaching. Like, like please, send out for plasma. <laughs> that cut me. That's really hard preaching. And then there's hard preaching that is like, you know, uh, what did he just get done saying? Uh, was there even an outline to that? Or, or as the, uh, you know, in the, they might say in the nursing pr- profession, I'm not sure how to chart that. And that's hard preaching. And then there's hard preaching that is, uh, you know, hard preaching only because we've not uh, thought about it, we've not considered it, maybe as we should. And, and because we have not given our mind to those things that are there in the Word of God for us, then it ends up being kind of hard preaching to us, perhaps. But So tonight, you might feel like uh, you came away drinking from a fire hose. But I'll remind you that the good thing about drinking from a fire hose is you get your whole face clean, and probably your whole body. And so, so that's going to be a good thing. And my goal tonight is just to give you, I think, hopefully give you an accidental discovery. Accidental discovery. So uh, let's go ahead and stand again. Grab your neighbor by the hand, and let's pray and ask God to give us that together tonight. Father, I thank you again for this time in your house. Lord, what, what an amazing Sunday we had yesterday. What an amazing time last night uh, together. And God, uh, we were, we're trusting you. For a week that's an amazing week, not for the reasons that the world would say something is amazing, but for the reasons that the Word of God would say, you're awesome. And what you do is awesome. And what you say should, should challenge us. Your grace is amazing. The, what we have in Christ is amazing. And the, and the challenge of world missions may sound big. But Lord, you're bigger. And God, all you have called us to do and asked us to do is follow in along with with your call upon our life. And so, Father, I pray tonight that for some, 
someone in here, maybe a young person, maybe a young couple, this could be a time of accidental discovery uh, of, of your thought, your idea, your plan, your purpose for them, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you, maybe seated in the Lord's presence. If you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3, and there was a man one time, he was cleaning out his attic, he had a garage sale, and then he was telling his friend about an old Bible that he found that he sold in this garage sale, and said it was, you know, printed by, it was really ancient Bible, and it was printed by some guy named Guten something. And his friend said, Gutenberg, don't tell me that you had a Gutenberg Bible. I mean, a complete copy of the Gutenberg Bible is like worth between 25 and $35 million. Man said, oh no, not this one. Because somebody, somebody named Martin Luther scribbled notes all over it. But since you're not feeling me, that was an accidental discovery. And since you're not feeling me like I need you to, can I give you an experiential exegesis of accidental discoveries? Can I just explore? I'm not going to exegete the scripture yet before I exegete your experience because I need to explore your experience for an explanation because sometimes we discover things by accident and we don't know the significance of what we found. And, and so first off, notice, if you will, that accidental discoveries reveal the past. Sometimes they reveal the past. Time magazine once reported on a body found by a couple of German tourists that were hiking through the um, Tyrolean Alps, and at first they thought it was a doll's head that was sticking out of melting ice, and upon closer inspection they found it was a human head, and uh, they saw what looked like a surface wound on the skull, and... And so they hurried to a shelter to report their find, and police were called to investigate what appeared to be a homicide on the mountain. And, and they had no idea what they found. And it was not until the director of the uh, Innsbruck Institute for Prehistory was summoned did they le learn the significance of, of that find. And, and here was by far the oldest intact human being ever found virtually intact, and, and if you thought that was the person sitting next to you, just keep looking up here, just keep, an, keep looking straight at me, they'll never know you were thinking about them, and, but the body and the clothing and the equipment is thought to hold thousands of clues about the way that this 5,000-year-old Neolithic trader lived. So accidental discoveries can reveal the past us, and then second, on the other hand, this is number two, they can give us perspective. Thomas Wheeler was a former CEO of Massachusetts Mutual Life, and he and his wife were driving along the highway, and he noticed that the car was running low on gas, so he got off at the next exit, and he found this run-down, broken-down gas station with just one pump. And so he stopped there, he got out, he told the attendant to check his oil and, and fill the tank, and then he went walking around the gas station to kind of stretch his legs, and as he was returning, he noticed that his wife and the attendant were in this animated conversation. And so whenever they drove away, Wheeler asked his wife whether or not she knew him. And she admitted, yes, I, I, I know who he is, and I dated him in high school. And so, so Wheeler says, just kind of smiled and said, you know, lucky for, for you that I came along. Because otherwise, you'd be the wife of a broke-down gas station attendant. And his wife just smiled back at him and said, Sweetie, if I'd married him, 
he'd be the CEO and you'd be the broke down gas station attendant. <laughs> what she gave him was perspective from that accidental discovery. And then third, accidental discoveries, this is number three, they show us purpose. Because once upon a time, there was a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day, he was shooting at some food, and up to the ground came a bubbling crude. Now, he did not immediately sense the significance of that find, but first thing you know, Jed's a millionaire. And kinfolk said, Jed, move away from here. He said, California is a place you ought to be. And they loaded up the truck, and they moved to Beverly. So, so here's our thesis for tonight's study. We need the Bible to help us make sense of who we are in God's purpose, where we are in eternity, and what we're called to surrender for. That is Paul's mission in this epistle he pens to the church at Ephesus. Paul writes to those believers to help them make sense of where they were and what they were going to be in eternity. And as partners in his passion to share the gospel, they lived in arguably the most demonized spot of the ancient world, living in a thoroughly Romanized Greek city. They needed to know their role in God's eternal purpose. So Paul writes to remind them of the mystery, and the mystery, and this is our first point for study, the mystery is that despite what's going on at any given moment in time, it is creating a cosmic consequence, an eternal effect that cannot be seen. Now that's part of why I'm so excited to be here, because I know that everything's valuable for eternity. So, so this is, I mean, this is it's maybe my last, but this is my first time to speak here, and, and so at least one time, at, you know, at least one conference, and so, so it's like the people we meet here, the relationships you have here, that's I know that's valuable for eternity, because when Paul said, you know, Paul wrote to Thessalonians and others, and he was like, you are my joy and crown of rejoicing. When God gives out assignments in eternity, he's not going to send me with the Apostle Paul. I, I didn't know the Apostle Paul. You know, he's going to send me with your pastor, and he's going to send me with others, because he's going to send us out based on the relationships we developed in this life, because everything's valuable for eternity. So in Ephesians 3, Paul presses pause long enough to pen words to call them and us to a personal surrender to God's mission. Thank God you showed up. Thank God you showed out on this second night because God has a word of destiny for you. It may be an accidental discovery, but this is important because this is our second point for study. If all you can see is your immediate situation, then your circumstances control you. They control you if all you see is the immediate situation. And that means your happiness is based on happenings. Hello, somebody. You, you are excited when circumstances are favorable, but you are miserable, critical, and complaining when they are not. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop looking over here at me. <laughs> if you do not surrender to the calling of God, then your happiness is based on happenstance. But as you open yourself up to God's eternal purpose, you get God's eternal perspective. And, and God's eternal perspective makes your happiness centered on the one is who, who is making the happenings happen. And, and so Paul tells these Ephesian saints, God, God's purpose is larger, it is greater, it's grander than what you ever imagined. 
Because I think we put this on the, on the outline that we gave for you. This, this is the definition. God's eternal purpose is just three things. To glorify himself by Jesus Christ through his body, which is this church. And I even gave you a chart. I, I, I don't know if it's printed on there or not. To show you how the Great Commission relates to God's eternal purpose. And so in this passage we've tagged to teach today, Paul says this is more extensive than anything you could ever imagine because it's cosmic in its dimension. So we are all called to look further, dream bigger, rise higher, push harder, stretch more, and focus our attention on four critical realities of God's eternal purpose. Anybody want to hear this? Just say, get her done, Alan. Okay, I will, because Paul wants us to understand. We are called to surrender to something big, and the first thing that it has to do with is God's sovereignty. Let the whole church say sovereignty. Okay, don't be scared of that. Don't be scared. Watch, verse 1, Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word stop. Because when Paul opens this letter in chapter 1, he introduces himself in chapter 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. But here he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ because at this point he's been incarcerated two years in Caesarea and three years in Rome and in route. So Paul was arrested in Jerusalem on trumped-up charges. He was unjustly incarcerated by Felix and then Festus and then finally extradited to Rome. He's placed under house arrest with soldiers assigned to guard him around the clock. I mean, he spent more time in jail than, than Lil Wayne or Johnny Cash. <laughs> and though he was arrested on Jewish charges, he doesn't say here he considers himself a prisoner of the Jews. Though he was imprisoned on Roman authority, he doesn't consider himself a prisoner of Rome because Paul understood God's sovereignty. So he, he knew he was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, bought with a price, given the special assignment of announcing the good news of the gospel to slaves, to soldiers, and even to Caesar. And he understood that biblically, sovereignty never undermines free will. And so God's sovereignty never undermines free will, and yet when he functioned in God's eternal purpose, then whatever he did, wherever he did it, God was in total control. Because without the Lord's consent, he was not subject to the politics, the power, the punishment of any person or principality, although... They were freely choosing to imprison him. So he didn't panic over his situation because he discovered God's sovereignty. Now let me open a window on that word because maybe this might be an accidental discovery for you tonight. There were frigid waters surrounding Greenland and where there are countless icebergs and, and uh, some are small and some are gigantic. And I like to, uh, on Instagram, I like to, subs uh, to uh, follow NASA and NASA Goddard. And they're always putting up pictures. And lately, uh, because Scott Kelly is up there for an entire year, and that'll be the longest that we've ever had a single a human being in space, 
Um, he, you know, and they put up some of the pictures that uh, he will take from time to time, and he's 250 miles above the earth. He's traveling 17,500 miles an hour, but uh, that's still slow enough for him to take a picture that will look down and, and, and show you the icebergs and the ice flows in the North Atlantic. And sometimes you see small ice flows moving in one direction, but these massive ones moving in the opposite direction. And that seems confusing, but the explanation is really simple. Surface winds drive the small icebergs, but ocean currents drive the big icebergs. Okay, I don't see why you're not getting this. Because the next time you face that trial, you need to remember there are two forces operating. There are surface winds, but there are ocean currents. There are deep currents. Gusts and gales represent everything distressing and unpredictable and changing, but out of sight, underneath the scene, ocean currents represent the sure movement of the sovereignty of God, the deep flow of his unchanging love, working up under the surface of your suffering to achieve God's eternal purpose. So Paul saw how his life was under divine control and he was in protective custody. Nothing can or will happen that God doesn't first permit if you are God's child. But just like in the book of Job, that does not mean you have no part to play. That does not mean we have no responsibility to fulfill. That does not mean there is no call to surrender to. That does not mean we have to resign ourselves to fate because while the first critical reality is God's sovereignty, the second thing, and this is number two, has to do with God's providence. Let the whole church say providence. providence. And then look at verse 7. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And what this text teaches us is God's providence has eyes. That's, that's the way Spurgeon phrased it. We're, we're not subject to blind fate. God's providence has eyes. And so God's providence is going to do one thing, but when it sees you change and do that, then it'll do another thing. And it's going to work out God's will even in the midst of your free will, because after you've done all you can, then God is going to work to control his will by his word. So, so matter, no matter what goes down or how, or even if I don't understand it, as long as God permitted it, I can flow with it. So I don't have to... I don't have to be, just be flexible. That's still too rigid. I can be fluid. And, and I can survive. And I can come up out of it because it's part of God's plan to produce something for himself for eternity. Now, turn to, keep your finger here. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And let me open a window on that word because there are a lot of, a lot of uh, business out, uh, businesses out there in industry, a lot of industries use a system called JIT or just in time. And rather than storing up these large quantities of expensive items, uh, JIT strategy calls for businesses to obtain raw materials only as they actually need them for production. Wait, that's the definition of providence. Okay, let me hit you with the definition. Providence means God has reserved in the future exactly what you need for when you get there. 
I mean, the illustration is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and here's Pilgrim, and he's trying to make his way to the celestial city after he gets set. Uh, Christian is trying to make his way to the celestial city after he gets saved, and, and he gets into this horrific fight with Apollyon, and Apollyon is just on his chest and about to make one final swipe, and all of a sudden, Christian's hand falls down on a sword. And he stabs Apollyon, and Apollyon goes running off. That's providence. God has placed what you need at the spot where you will need it as you get there in his will. And, you know, sometimes we even make mistakes, as Christian did in in leaving something behind and having to backtrack and get it and, you know, going for a while off the path and, you know, getting caught up in, uh, uh, um, you know, the Vanity Fair and other things. And yet God still, if you go, God's providence has eyes. And if you go that way, even though it's the way you shouldn't go at the point you repent, he will have stored up in advance at the spot the thing that you need to get out of whatever you got into. So the Word of God will do the work as you walk in the Spirit, because if you walk in the Spirit, He'll walk you out of whatever you are into, and He will walk you into where God wants you. So, so if you never get... Here's, but, wait, hold it. If you never get going in God's purpose, you never get the effective working of God's power and God's grace in your life by providence. How'd you miss that all these years? See, see, I need you to remind, remind, I need to remind you Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You may not see how things fit. You may not know how things happen. You may not under, understand what is going down. But God can see the picture even before he connects the dots. Because God uses a J-I-T method. He shows us what we need when we need to see it. God moves to supply us as we move to serve him. He, he, he will supply us as we stretch to reach him. He guides us where we need to go as we follow him. He gives us what we need to have as we need to have it because my God is just in time. God moves just in time. God rescues just in time. God delivers just in time. God didn't come when I wanted. But he's always right on time. Where's Dottie Peoples when you need her? Okay, wait, wait. God's promise always supplies God's purpose because it's stored up in advance for when you get there. And if you're a believer by being born again, then it's not accidental or coincidental, it's providential. So it's not even accident that you're here tonight, it's divine arrangement. And you might not see how it fits, why it happens, but you can trust God's sovereignty, you can trust God's providence. And then the third critical reality, this is number three, is God's mystery. Let the whole church say mystery. Okay, this is your missions conference, and I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry to crash it. But my name is Alan, and I'm your friend. And I was told that you wanted to be stretched so that you could reach. And all I know is what they told me. So, so if I say the same things you've always heard, then you're not going to be stretched to think further biblically, capiche? 
So Paul wants us to recognize something big is happening here. Ephesians chapter 3, it has to do with God's eternal purpose, and God has a surprise. Watch verse 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote a four in few words whereby when ye read, and I think he's probably talking about the few words he wrote at the end of the book of Romans, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. That's the definition of a mystery, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the, and here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. By the gospel. What a surprise that the Messiah of the Jews makes his new covenant promises open to Gentiles who believe the gospel. And when we believe the good news about the finished work of Christ, how Jesus died for our sins on the cross, then we're all made part of the same body in order to complete the eternal purpose of God. So Paul says, if you look at verse 8, he's surprised that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make known to all men, make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now that's crazy. Because, let me hit you with this definition, a mystery in the Bible is not something hidden or undiscovered, it is a a surprise that's now been revealed. Because a New Testament mystery is a truth not uncovered in the Old Testament, but now revealed. And this surprise is how, through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel and members together of one body... So let me take a teaching moment right here, because verse 2 tells us this dispensation is an administration of God's grace. And let me hit you with this definition. A dispensation is the method by which God is dispensing eternal life in any given age. The method by which God is saving man from their sins. In the Old Testament, it was through sacrifices at the temple. In the New Testament, it is trusting Jesus for eternal life, because his finished work is what those temples sacrifices we're pointing to. So check this. Paul becomes the manager of something that belongs to God. He sets up an economy of grace. But while this surprise is revealed through Paul, verse 3, the dispensing of grace is given to every believer, verse 2. And we are to make all men understand this mystery, verse 9. So Paul points out how this plan of God surprises us. It's it's, it's an accidental discovery that surprises us because God hid it in himself, verse 9, until he got ready to reveal it. So the church as the body of Christ, that's not foreseen in the Old Testament. Paul says, you know what? God let me in on a secret. I got to, I got to tear open the box, unwrap the box and, and tear open the paper and, and, t- and, and take it out of the box and show it for the first time, and I don't deserve it, but God let me do it. And 
when I think about the depth of God's grace and the extent of God's mercy, I recognize it's not just for me, but in the final analysis, that last critical reality, this is number four, is God's solution. We see a manifestation, manifestation of the magnificent mystery of God, but then Paul takes us a little bit deeper. Okay, watch, verse 10. To the intent that now... And he takes us deeper by taking us higher unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church. God has put you and me on open display to teach something to angels and devils. God puts the church on display to teach heaven and hell about his wisdom in Jesus Christ to glorify himself. So the church is a university for angels, and every saint is a professor of theology. You need to take a moment to let that marinate in your mind. Because that means what happens to us has a purpose that goes far beyond us. And God intends to use the events of your life to create an HD, 3D, 4K display for the universe to see. You say, Alan, what are we teaching that angelic audience? And you're asking good questions tonight. For the angelic, we give them a reason to praise. For the demonic, we give them a reason to panic. That's what that is. Watch verse, verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So can I take you another further before we leave tonight and just show you what it takes to make a personal surrender to God's eternal purpose. I feel like I've got to give you something concrete that there has to be some way to really make you stretch so you can reach all the way and to all the world that God wants you to reach to. After all, you need to know what you're being called to surrender to. And to make any real spiritual stretching, there are three critical ingredients. First, you must have vision. Let the whole church say vision. Because vision means we are gripped by the necessity of glorifying God. And as soon as that vision is clear, then it sweeps everything into its vortex, including the difficult and the disastrous and, and the distracting circumstances. Second, along with vision, we've got, we've got to have earnest intention. Let the whole church say intention. Because, because projects of spiritual transformation, they don't happen automatically or, or incidentally or accidentally, they spring from a decision to walk with Christ. If you didn't make it yesterday morning, at some point this week, you're going to have to transact personal business with God. Action has to be purposeful, and it has to start from the inside, and, and that is called intention. So no concrete vision will ever just happen, which brings us third to strategy. There is some means and instrumentality that enables our intention to fulfill the vision, and, and that strategy is Christ's body, this church. So if the vision is clear and the intention is earnest, and the means and the method are consistent, then the outcome is assured. 
Let me be kind and rewind. The outcome is assured. If the vision is clear, the intention is earnest. We've, we've lost that good word, earnestness. You know, that was the thing that Spurgeon said. What makes a good prayer meeting? Earnestness. Earnestness. Not Don't be boring in your preaching. Don't be boring in your praying. Something has to come out of the heart of you at some time. At some point in time, you need to connect your emotions to the Bible principles and the eternal purpose of God. But if, it's, if, if, it's, if the vision is clear, if, if the intention is earnest, if the means and methods are consistent, then the outcome is assured. So let me take a teaching moment right here because the vision involves decision. That means surrender to the calling of God on your life. It involves discipleship. And it all involves training. And all of that will result in maturity. Now... You need to write that down. I understand this. I didn't have this in your outline. I understand, you know, you'll have to add this to the handout, but you really need to write that down because what I'm doing right now is, you know, you remember when your grandfather used to take out his old Buick and he'd go onto the highway and he would floor that sucker, a bunch of black smoke would come out the back and he'd say, hey, I got to blow out, I got to blow out the carbon out of this engine. Okay, uh, um, I'm blowing the carbon out right now, and I know it doesn't feel good. <laughs> You've got smoke coming out your ears, but you really need to write this down because the vision involves decision. If you haven't started there, don't, don't tell me you support the vision. It involves decision. It involves discipleship. You've got to get discipled after you've made a decision. Right. And, and then it involves training, because discipleship is the basic fundamentals. But training takes you places that you would never go without God's leading. And all of that is what results in maturity. So, so I understand I'm saying a lot of things that I don't fully develop in this message. And, and you know, that will leave you feeling like you were drinking out of a fire hose. But but i got to give you what I think God wants me to, wants you to have. And, and so, if it's an equipping vision, it's going to root you in the goals of discipleship because it's going to establish you in, in worship and in the Word and in fellowship of believers and in the ministry of reconciliation to the lost. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says, God arranged things so that this church, in surrendering to his vision and strategy with intention will display the multifaceted wisdom of God. So God uses us together to display all the hues and varieties of God's wisdom to a waiting and a watching cosmic realm. And once God revealed his secret, it surprised me. Because check this, let me hit you with this definition. The mystery of the church means God undoes the division he instituted in Genesis 10. The mystery of Christ's body, the church, means that God is now undoing the division he instituted in Genesis 10. So in Ephesians 3, God chooses these poetic adjectives because there's a reason why we don't look the same. There's a reason why we don't think the same. There's a reason why we don't vote the same. Wait, stop it. Okay, stop right there because... 
The only reason you think we should vote the same is because you think one of the political parties is your Messiah. So I hope you get that thing straightened out. Get it straightened out on Facebook because they are the ones that need to know that you know better. There's a reason we have different tastes and attitudes and, and, and cultures because here's our third point for study. God's using our unique diversity to paint a colorful masterpiece to become the cosmic centerpiece because it cannot be duplicated anyplace else but in churches across this planet. So let me take a teaching moment right here because Paul now starts to slip into the cosmic realm and the cosmic dimension of God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose is to unite in one body all saved believers for the purpose of making a statement to angelic and demonic principalities and powers who have been watching the drama of redemption unfold on this planet. So the church is not just God's surprise to Old Testament saints. No, the church is God's surprise to angels. The church is God's surprise to demons. The church is God's surprise to the devil. And most Christians today do not realize what a surprise they are. And that's surprising. We now have a completed revelation in the Bible, so we're able to read the anti-types and the reality of the New Testament back into the types and the, the shadows of the Old Testament and in its tabernacle and the furnishings and its sacrifices. We're able to see the Savior in the shadows. But all those things were designed to teach us about our eternal purpose so the manifold wisdom of God in the drama of redemption could be displayed to a waiting and watching cosmos of spiritual beings. So they could marvel at his wisdom as they praise him for his grace. You thought the angels rejoiced in heaven when one person became a child of God because they were happy for that child of God. But it's not, it's not all about you. And we're happy when you get saved. And when you make a decision or you come forward or you... Ask somebody to pray with you and, and, and you trust Christ. We don't look at you strange because, because if you're really born again, you've had an exchange of life. You've done that yourself at some point and, 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 and we are all happy for you. And the angels do rejoice. But they rejoice because once again, they're seeing the amazing manifold wisdom of God in replacing the sons of God that fell with the sons of God that are being born again. And, and, and that's just amazing when they see that. So God's purpose is so much bigger than me, and God's eternal purpose is so much longer than my life, and the blessing is I get to be resurrected and become a, a part of an eternal plan. And so I hope you get this before you go, because this is a local body, a local body that God is doing something unique with that will affect all of eternity. Oh, I don't need you to say amen, because I could preach this on the sidewalk and be happy. God, God, my God is green because he never wastes anything. Not even the tiniest tear falls outside of his purpose. Don't ask me why other churches don't see this. All I know is God intends to use us as a demonstration of his wisdom to the universe 
to use our love for one another as proof of the power of the gospel to your family, to this community, and to the world. So as we struggle with our issues, as we battle with our problems, as we navigate our nightmares, as we deal with all the dilemmas, as we fight spiritual warfare, the entire universe has taken notes. That means a lot of what happens to you is not just about you. And, you know, and I'll say this, since this happens to be a conference week, um, I, I, I have to believe in the existence of God because I know there's a devil. I mean, if I, even if I didn't believe in the existence of God, I have to believe in the existence of the devil because he always knows when I'm preparing for a conference. I'm just saying. He always knows when something special is going on at church. He always knows, and that's when he attacks. I, so I know there's a devil. There must be a God because I, I sure know there's a devil out there. He is fighting God's eternal purpose, tooth and nail, as we would say. But the decision that you make today, the decision you make tonight, maybe a decision to get saved. Uh, maybe a decision to get baptized if you've already been saved. Maybe a decision to join this church if you've already been saved and baptized. Maybe you come here and you get fed here, but you're not a member here. Shame on you. Maybe a decision to participate in terms of giving and getting over your greed and letting God bless the rest by giving him some first fruits. And maybe a decision to stretch and go further and support by a promise of faith, what God's going to do in missions through this church. And, and that, that decision that you make, maybe it's a decision to get discipled. Maybe it's a decision to consecrate yourself to the mission on some level, to, to going or preparing to going or some training, a decision to take a, a Living Faith Bible Institute class. Whatever business you need to transact with God tonight destroys the dreams and, t and intentions the devil had for you. And it puts you right into God's eternal plan. And it's a plan from which you can trust God's promises. Promises for which you can know God's power. Power from which you can be strengthened with might in the inner man to overcome sin and win lost souls to Christ. Now, I've got to let you go, but I went to the bank one day. Not that I do that that often. <laughs> Not that I have that much money. But one day I went to the bank, and the ATM started speaking to me. Now, you know I'm not crazy because I did say, you ain't talking to me. But the ATM said, no, Alan, uh, you know, Shakespeare said that a good preacher could get a sermon from looking at stones. And, and God wants me to give you a message from the ATM. After all, I'm a, I'm a lot like you Christians. I said, what can you possibly have in common with us Christians? Well, he said, you know, you would be amazed at how many people cuss me out. And I said, well, oh, okay. I guess as a Christian, you know, sometimes I get cussed out, but explain that to me. He said, well, they put in their card, they enter their pen, they tell me the account to be debited, but instead of me giving them cash, I have to give them a note. And that's when the cussing begins. And, 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 and he said, Alan, you and I both know why there's no money coming out of me, because they've put no money in me. 
I can't give them money out of that account because they put no money into that account. He said, Alan, look, I used to be slow too, but I still don't see why you're not getting this because the reason God is going to stretch you is because God's made an eternal deposit in you. Shaman Alaronda should have bought a Honda. I don't believe speaking in tongues is for today, but if I did, I, this is what I do. I do it right there. God put the Bible in you, and he's going to stretch you until you believe it. God put Bible principles in you. He's going to stretch you until you apply them. God put an investment in you, and he will stretch you until you give him the first fruits. I mean, something big is happening at this church. That If that does not motivate you to surrender to your calling, then maybe you need to examine whether or not you're even called to salvation. Have you gotten saved yet? You say, well, Alan, I was drowning once. No, I mean, if you've been born again, something bigger is happening here, and from here, you get to be a part of it. Every head bowed, every eye closed, every Christian, please pray.